Welcome back. Welcome back. Hello, welcome back to CPET's podcast, Center Ed Teaching. You may have noticed we've been on hiatus for a while, but that's because I was on a spiritual journey to find... (laughs) (laughs) Trying to say it with a straight (laughs) face. Apparently it wasn't that spiritual. Actually, no. I... uh, we just had some problems with coordination for our new schedule, but with the school year uh, back in full swing, we want to get the podcast back in full swing. And so we've had some interesting discussions from inside CPET and outside CPET about possible topics to cover. And it seems the first one that we should cover with our first podcast back for the year is teaching in today's political climate. Mm. It seems people both on the left, on the right, agnostic, um, have questions about with so much changing and so much seemingly instability, how do we understand the world that we live in? But then two, also, how does that world affect the schools that we work in? Um, And so as we started this planning for this podcast, one thing that we were really troubled about is everyone keeps saying, how do you teach in today's political climate? But what specifically do we mean? Because there may be political leanings that make someone feel one way or another, but there are particular uncertainties that I think regardless of political affiliation and just in general affect schools and affects teachers. So I think we've tried to maybe synthesize what some of those are, but I'm really not sure what they are. So who wants to take a stab at what it means to talk about today's political climate? I guess I do, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Ryan. Hi, Hi, y'all. So right now, uh, what uh, is of concern to me, and it's um, a a narrative that's out there in the world, is the erosion of trust in institutions. Um, Among those institutions um, is the press. Um, or the news media, let's say, now that we're <laughs> press is dying, unfortunately. Um, but the the idea is that um, in order to take action in the world, we need to have information. And the question is um, where, how, when we are able to gather our information, sort it, and use it to um, inform our choices. Um, previously, we would get information from definitive sources, um, uh, particular uh, presenters of, of news, um, whether it was the, the old big three um, TV networks um, or particular um, newspapers. But with the democratization of the ability to publish, um, thanks to the Internet, um, every voice is out there and every voice is available. And um, as we touched on in a previous podcast, fact, fiction, fake news, Um, the notion is that at any given moment, uh, students have access to the entirety of the world's information and misinformation, um, often in their pockets in the form of a smartphone. Um, So how do we help students, or how how does anyone sort through um, this deluge of information and misinformation that's available? Um, And to me, that's sort of the, the linchpin when we talk about today's political climate, which is there's no monocultural conversation about um, the, the direction our country ought to be going or um, how we make decisions or even what is true and what is false. Um, it's kind of everyone's on their own now um, and um, they're, they're 
listening or, or tuning into the, the news sources that uh, seem to, um, uh, well, the ones that appeal to them. It's an um, echo chamber, right? Well, yeah, there's, you know, the, the, the other sort of buzzwords that are out there in the world right now, echo chamber or tribalism mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. whatever. But the notion, that what, what's, what I keep coming back to is just how do we sort fact from fiction? Because without that <coughs> initial, like, sort of intake of information then we're paralyzed in terms of, of making decisions. And if on in one ear I've got a, a, a left-leaning news outlet and in another ear I have a right-leaning news outlet and they are covering the same episode, um, same historic occurrence differently, then how do I determine what are the facts of the case and then take action? Um, but uh, uh, there's... Just a lot of mistrust out there in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Well, but I think a lot of people would argue that there has been mistrust of mm. print for a long time. So I guess I'm. what about this particular moment makes it so much more different for you that students and teachers really have to grapple with? It seems to me that um, somehow the stakes are higher. That is to say that... Um, The, the, while it certainly makes sense to question um, f- sources of information, um, to question motivations of the people who are the purveyors of information, um, uh, to, to independently come to some evaluation about the, the veracity and the plausibility of the information that you're acquiring, um, the, the sort of uh, aggressive, the pernicious um, attack hacking of, uh, uh, of uh, or sort of volleys that are being fired back and forth uh, between these these sources. Um, that's fake news. That's real. This is true. This is false. Um, there's a. It seems like the. It, it, it's not a discussion. It's a fight. It's the difference. Like that we we've we've sort of lost the idea of agonism and we veer toward antagonism. Hmm. Um, and um, so the. The, the disagreements are no longer disagreements, they're battles. I, I just want to build on what you're saying there. And I think one of the things that's contributing is an interesting phenomenon around the impact of technology on, on our climate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 50%, okay, that's a made-up statistic, but let's go with it. Half, or roughly half, of the news that is reported on regarding our president often has to do with something that he has tweeted that is or is not based on anything other than his personal opinion. Mm. And platforms like social media, Facebook and Twitter in particular, have had these extremely democratizing impacts in that anyone who can can pick it up and we all have access to the same global world. Mm. And with the onset of, of Twitter moving away from here's what I had for lunch today and moving into um, citizen reporting mm. uh, and, and and Maven sort of becoming more and more popular, sharing their ideas and gaining followers and therefore gaining uh, respect and gaining more followers and getting tweeted and retweeted mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth, that that those, those um, interjections through social media 
um, aren't necessarily vetted through any sort of like uh, truth mill or fact-finding mm, mission mm, or anything mm, like that. Mm. And they very, very quickly become, as you said, antagonism. I mean, the Twitter war uh, may be the, the, the word of the year <laughs> um, in, in the sense that like that's, that's what the main <coughs> form of discourse is. And I heard you know, somebody say the other day, like, if you're, if you're really upset and you're in Congress, don't just tweet thoughts and prayers. Actually do a vote. Actually write a bill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that we have misplaced mm-hmm. um, some of our sense of power um, in just sort of like tweeting out what I think in 140 characters rather than taking action in the areas where I have influence. Or maybe I'm wrong and that it's that tweet that is the area that I do have influence and it's the the things in the world that feel like uh, you're powerless. I'm not sure, but I I feel like there's something that we have to, Mm -hmm. not necessarily in this pod, but that, that we need to take up around how that technology has an impact on the way of doing business um, in the world of politics. Well, I think if I can just try to synthesize something that both of you said and distill this idea of Twitter war and fake news is not that it's necessarily new that there's um, different opinions that can lead to different conclusions, but that this erosion of trust in institutions combined with this information overload is problematic in itself. But there's almost a a political exploitation of this mistrust mm-hmm. for views. Mm-hmm. So, right, information is never apolitical. It always has a stance, but now when it's muddled by particular politicians, maybe embodied better than no one else than the commander-in-chief currently, that creates another layer of a problem that I think maybe w- that we're touching on. Um, so I guess that's one thing when we're talking about today's political climate. Are there any other things that we're thinking specifically impact teachers, students, and classrooms? Um, yeah, I think I'm listening to both of, of um, Roberta's and Brian's commentaries, and I just wonder, like, how we teach in this political climate, right? Like, what does that really mean? And for me, I feel like as a teacher educator, as somebody who works in schools, I'm seeing a further marginalization of black and brown children by all of all of this, right? And I think it just adds and exacerbates to whether it was an imagined instability or a real instability for people, and specifically for our kids in the school. I think it it makes makes me wonder what that then looks like. Um, I think that the policies around immigration and deportation um, are compounding an already disproportionate education system that we see, and especially if we think of urban schools where black and brown kids go to school they're already marginalized by, <clears throat> sorry, whatever the process of education is at their school, but then now they're also further pushed to the margins by fear of parents being deported or their own safety or not coming to school because they have to protect younger siblings. We have, um, you know, the, the possible <clears throat> removal of people from homes, and so it becomes less of a, of a talk out there, but more of a, an actualization of what happens in the neighborhoods and people that they know and family members and so it becomes very real um and so i think when we talk about deficits in education this is just something that's just added already to a very imbalanced um education system for black and brown youth yeah i think almost what i'm hearing you say is right there's already an 
inequity in education mm-hmm. for black and brown youth, specifically low income mm-hmm. black and brown youth. And so there might be the marginalization of a standardized test. Right. But now you're talking about deportation right. and the literal like right. loss of life that compounds that. I, I think right. that's an incredibly apt point. Yeah. Um, what yeah. other things do we mean? Well, I just want to build on that to say often, especially in our struggling schools or um, our struggling neighborhoods, we'll hear stories about kids who are afraid to go to school mm. because the neighborhood is really rough. Right. Or kids who are afraid to go to school because um, the, the school has had problems with violence in the past. But I've been <clears throat> in education now for um, almost 20 years. Don't look it. I feel really old to say that. <laughs> but I'm proud. Uh, I've been in education for almost 20 years now, and this is the first time I've ever heard kids saying that they're afraid to go to school because of the government. Mm-hmm. Kids afraid to go to school because if I go to school, then someone in my family might be in trouble, then I might be in trouble. Mm-hmm. And I think that it speaks very loudly when you have official organizations, the official statement from the department, from the you know New York City Department of mm-hmm. Education, the largest school district in the nation, saying, yeah, we're not going to cooperate with the federal government on this one. We're not going to cooperate with ICE on deporting our children. We're not going to cooperate with people who are asking questions about uh, our children and giving directives to principals to say, you are not to cooperate with federal agents who are trying to come and question um, students about their immigration status. I, I, I've never been in a time where, where that was a thing. Um, mm. And it is disruptive. Um, and that's putting it, I think, mildly. mildly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just as much as kids are concerned about coming to school, I think that when they are at school, their minds are really troubled and they're coming to school with a lot of questions about the public's response to what we're referring to as the right. political climate. Right. Um, so they're coming to school with questions about, you know, we returned to school um, just after Labor Day. They're, they're coming to school with questions right. about Charlottesville. They're coming to school with questions about Confederate statues. Mm-hmm. They're coming to school with questions about gun laws and violence um, in mass shootings. They're coming to school with questions about mm-hmm. protests mm-hmm. and trying to understand um, what should their response be or how should they be responding. Um, and and they don't necessarily have all of the skills that they need to problem solve through the information that they have. Mm-hmm. So part of the problem is that there's this there's the uh, conflict of like information conflict and what's out there. But then once they have that information, what skills do they really have to sort it out and to make sense of it? Right. And I think just one thing to add on that, there is another layer of complexity because it's not just understanding the opposing points of view or the different interpretations of Charlottesville or the way that the Las Vegas shooting that unfortunately happened recently has been covered, but Students have their own opinions about things, and how do those opinions fit within the larger narrative? And are they able to express that and articulate that, or do their voices become marginalized because Mm. this conversation Mm. um, takes that away? So I, I think that's something that gets into this larger issue of, like, so if these are the things that we identify as the political climate... Like, how does that then not only influence students' lives, as Marcel, you touched on, Roberta, you had touched on, Brian, you had touched on, but, like, how does it affect the classroom? How Mm -hmm. does it affect teachers? What are the other things that they have to consider? Um, 
I'm not sure. I, I guess, like, what are our thoughts on that? Well, I think teachers should all be just robots. Just to pretend <laughs> like nothing's Nothing happening. Happened. Just, like, walk in and do your job. Okay, just kidding. I think for me... Sorry, Brian. I think for me it makes me think back of when I was in South Africa being raised in an apartheid era. I know my friends are laughing because I always, I always reference it. But it's like when you write poetry, right? They say when you write poetry and there are only flowers growing, you, can, you should write about the flowers growing. But when the, the temperament changes, that the poetry should, should move into what happens in the world. And I think that the same is true. That analogy works for me with teaching. I feel like as teachers we have a moral obligation to offer that space to our, to our children where there's a, a space for critical discussion, there's a, there's a space for um, being able to, to grapple with the things that they bring with them to the table, whether it's the fear of, will my mother be here this afternoon to pick me up from school or is Ice going to pick her up from work because I know she's undocumented, right? A lot of our kids, um, Spanish-speaking kids, are, know that their parents are undocumented because they do all the translations mm-hmm. when they have to fill in forms and stuff, and so they know these things, right? Um, and so it's like, what does that look like for a, for a teacher in a teaching space, right? What what does that mean for a teacher's own neutrality, for a teacher's own political bias, for a teacher's um, fear of administration, or, um, you know, coming down on them for, for speaking about the Charlottesville um, protests or the way the president speaks. And so, like, it's, it's such a, a conglomerated affair because it has all this emotion and feelings and civil liberties, civil justice, civil, civil you know, the, the rights to, to, to speak. And so, like, how do we translate that into a classroom where we're teaching history or teaching English or teaching math? And then do we disregard children's, like, their feelings and their stuff? Do we tell them, leave that at the door, we're busy <laughs> doing math now? You know, it reminds me of how we used to tell black kids, don't don't talk about the, the street talk in the classroom, you know? So it's like, it's the same kind of, like, shutting shutting down those voices. And so, like, what does all of that mean? Who, like, who gets to speak, who doesn't get to speak? Do teachers have the right to speak? Well, Marcella, you brought up, like, <laughs> no, way too many five, good things, 5, things to I talk know. about. So I want to <clears throat> try to just break them down one by one. And so one of the things that you talked about was the neutrality of mm. the teacher. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for me, like, as a teacher, I was trained that as a teacher, you are neutral. Mm. And that's how you must present yourself. Mm. Given what we're saying today's political climate is, is that still the approach? Is there a different approach? What do we think? Brian, you're looking at me like I've said something silly. Well, no, not said something silly. I, I mean, my first year of um, full-time classroom teaching was 99. And so 2000, we had um, Bush versus Gore. Um, and um, the that... Ah, the good old days. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, um, uh, you know, I was very aware during that election when students would ask me, how did you vote? Um, are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? Um, uh, what do you believe about X, Y, Z issues? Uh, and um, like you said, Matt, I was uh, taught as a pre-service teacher to to have this sort of affected neutrality, um, to respect the sanctity of the voting booth, as we say in the U.S. Um, and I don't know if that's possible any longer. Um, or if it's advisable any longer. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the um, conversations that are surfacing as a result 
of the, the 2016 election and the policies of the current administration are so uh, challenging to the status quo in the United States that um, uh, as teachers we can't sit on the sideline or mm. we, can't, um, we can't say, well, that's a private thing. Um, I think that while teachers don't need to go out and advocate in their classrooms for a political position, and I, I don't think they should, um, I think uh, it's become more important for teachers to model our processes as mm. adults, as citizens, mm. Mm. as participants in the political discourse, um, to model our struggles, to model our questions, to model our our processes for decision making. Mm. Because when we do go into the voting booth and we have to check a box or flip a switch, um, it's ultimately, in America at least, a binary choice. And so how do we arrive at the choice yeah. we do? I think that has now become um, not just important, but uh, essential. And I think it's a thing that previously might have if been touched upon, had been sort of lurking in the hidden curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But now, mm-hmm. um, and I think especially we, we have some cover for this with Common Core, um, now I think this notion of how we weigh information and make decisions has to become part of the um, explicit curriculum. Mm-hmm. And part of, part of our practice as teachers has to be modeling good discourse. And, you know, I know good discourse is kind of not very good, but, <laughs> so, but so you I just, talk good. Yeah, I want to highlight something that I'm hearing you say. Um, it sounds like right when students bring these questions, it's not actually a conversation about political content. It's a conversation about thinking processes. So much that you would annotate a reading passage mm-hmm. to highlight what a good reader does right you would do the same for highlighting what a good political thinker does like what right. are the questions that are asked and what are that that process so it removes possibly the political excuse me inclination of the teacher although what kind of questions you ask can sometimes be guided that but it's at least an uh, owning up to this is what I do and this is how it's done for me and think about that yourself I, I think also there's I really like how you framed that. And, and I think that part of the, the, not part of, but a major role of the teacher's job is to help the students not just see that thinking, but experience it for themselves. Mm. And that we move, that there's a portion of our role that's around our own modeling and, and sharing and being open and, and a human being with our students. That's one of the only ways that you can build relationship and really understand your students is by helping them to understand you. Um, But also I think that the stakes are higher for us creating spaces in our classroom to make sure that our students are taking up and are practicing those kinds of critical thinking questions, those kinds of problem-solving questions, those analysis moments um, that, that citizens really need to be taking on. Um, but that we're creating space to do that in our classrooms and then making connections between um, those processes and the content of the day. So whether that's a history class, we're making connections between current events and historical events, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. Nothing that we're experiencing now has never happened before, despite what people will tell you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it has happened before. It just hasn't happened necessarily in the United States. Um, 
So, so, but how can we make connections between what's happening now and what was happening historically? Mm -hmm. In literature classes, how can we be, make connections between the characters of the day and the characters in a text? How can we be leveraging our literacy skills um, as we're taking and making sense of uh, social media posts or of um, articles that are you know, cruising around online or even of the most prominent political stories? We look at presidential speeches all the time mm -hmm. um, as a part of the curriculum, both in uh, social studies and in uh, literacy and literature classes. What does that look like today as we try to understand and analyze the thesis or the main points or the values that are embedded in our readership? Um, those are all opportunities, not just not to necessarily say, you know, sneak in my opinion, mm -hmm. but those are our opportunities to equip students to take on um, the critical thinking skills that are required to navigate um, the world today. I just want to like dot the I. I think at least in what I heard of what you said, and you can tell me if that's wrong, but the idea that what really is changing for teachers is how they intellectually prepare for their class. Mm -hmm. Because you have to think about what are the strategies that I use to understand this? How do I do that? But then also, what is the content? What are the connections that I can use? If we're going to look at presidential speeches, which ones are we going to look at? Yep. What are the connections that we're drawing? How does that relate to the present? If we're doing a math class and we're mm -hmm. talking about a particular problem set or quote-unquote like real-life math problems, what implications are there in the real world that we're constructing? What are the identities that are there, and how do we understand that and disentangle that? And I might not be speaking as clearly about math, because that's not necessarily my forte, um, but I feel like that's maybe what you're getting at, is that teachers have to step back and reframe how they're teaching their <clears throat> class, and that's going to take time, because they have to digest it themselves yeah. to present. And I, and I think that's an important distinction. Mm. Oftentimes as a teacher, I have enough distance from the curriculum that I'm teaching so that I, it's, it's an easier separation between mm. my own experience, my own lived experience, my understanding mm. of the content and, and I, and I can distill it rather relatively quickly to present it in front of 35, 15 year olds. Mm. When the teacher themselves, uh, regardless of political leanings is caught up in the moment of the day, then that distance uh, shrinks mm -hmm. by a lot. Mm -hmm. And then you do have to really think critically because okay. teachers do have a powerful position. Um, but our but our PowerPoint, I've said this before, our PowerPoint is in our podium to, to, to sort of like, let me tell you what I think. That's right. But it is our responsibility, our, our sort of <laughs> our state-authorized responsibility to create space in our classrooms where students are taking up the critical thinking, the most critical, critical thinking mm. skills of the day, the most critical events, the most critical topics, and are working through that in safe spaces. Mm. Um, and that does require the teacher to think more deeply and to plan <coughs> more specifically about what they're going to, what space they're going to create, how they're going to help their students acquire that knowledge and skills and um, how they're going to help them to really discuss and problem solve and come to their own solutions. And it also, I think, begs for the teacher to show their own vulnerability and fragility mm -hmm. as well, right? Because 
I think to be able to engage in those conversations, you have to be able to open yourself, whether it doesn't matter what side of the political fence you're on, I feel like you still have to be able to balance your own feelings around it and then also be able to create those spaces for the students that you're teaching. We're living our lives together, right? Yeah. Uh, when I was in the fourth grade, my teachers were watching the Challenger and they brought on these um, these giant carts, you know, with the TV box mm. on the top and the VHS thing mm. on the bottom, and it didn't really get any channels. Um, but we watched it in class as part of this sort of, like, national historic right. moment. Right. And what suddenly, what started off as, you know, a, a connection to, to, to science and technology in the middle of, you know, your elementary school day quickly turned in the matter of minutes to national tragedy mm-hmm. and our my teachers were experiencing that as as, as adults yeah. alongside their classrooms just as teachers on 9-11 were experiencing that yeah. alongside their students as human beings mm-hmm. and if we forget the humanity um, that comes along in our classrooms then like what's the point yeah <laughs> like, what are we even doing here i think that's so beautifully put right that teachers experience all these things alongside the students mm-hmm. and so like what is that um intersection of of space what does that intersection of space look like where we're both in our human form and both being able to grapple with these issues on crazy political scales to just downright you know human human levels and so like i think that's 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 the question how do we do that? Mm-hmm. I think there's almost a contradiction, but I don't think it's a contradiction at all. And the idea that we're saying that you have to bring in the contemporary ideas and discourses of the moment, but that you also can't do it right away because you need time mm-hmm. to digest. Mm-hmm. And I think people are like, well, if I need time to digest, then how do I bring it in? Yeah. I think it's just as impactful to talk about Charlottesville yeah. two weeks after it happens than in the immediate aftermath where you've had a chance to process it then think through what does the presentation to students look like and, and what is the outcome of the conversation. Um, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong in that, but I, I think that's what I'm hearing. Um, well, I also think it's okay to say, I don't know, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. right? And to, to, to say, like, I, I'm not sure how to talk about this yet or mm-hmm. um, I, I'd like to talk about it with you guys, but I'm really personally yeah. upset about these situations Um, and and you know Marcel earlier you were talking about being vulnerable with our students Uh, I think that that there could be a perceived vulnerability there but at the you know pushing through that I don't need to be all-knowing in front of my students and just acknowledging like I'm this is really upsetting to me too or I don't know how Mm -hmm. I feel Mm -hmm. about this or I don't yet know how to talk about this I think pushing through that actually gives a teacher more credibility with their students. It gives yeah. them more humanity yeah. with their students and it allows them to be people together. Yeah. Um, and the teacher is really just a human being with, with some more experience. And depending on how much experience, it might just be four or five years of, a, of longer life. Yeah. Our, you know, our 22 or 23 year olds who are walking into the classroom teaching seniors in high school, mm-hmm. they don't have much extra wisdom right. <laughs> necessarily so being who we are authentically who we are with our kids and um, I think embracing yeah. when we don't know yeah. um, embracing opportunities to c- create space for our students 
to learn and think through things and figure them out themselves. We're not asking them to uh, adopt an opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, oftentimes kids come in thinking what their parents thought Mm -hmm. uh, and and because their parents think it. Mm -hmm. School is a wonderful place to begin to question our assumptions and to question our first choices. Um, and at the end of the day, after that questioning, if you still think what you thought before, then good job. Now you think it for yourself. And if you don't, that's okay too, because yeah. you're thinking for yourself. Can I get real nerdy just for a second? Totes. So <laughs> I, I know that we're talking about the humanity and we're talking about students reflecting, but for me, this really goes back to Bloom's taxonomy in a subtle distinction between analysis and evaluation. Yes. So in analysis, you are given criteria and you analyze something based on that criteria. In evaluation, the student actually creates their own criteria and then analyzes it. Mm -hmm. And I think like what I'm hearing you say is like you have to think about the scaffolding that maybe they came in believing what their parents believed because that was the criteria that was established. Mm -hmm. And that may be the criteria that they truly believe, but there needs to be that space from Mm -hmm. them to work from that analysis Mm -hmm. to evaluation where they're making these decisions for themselves and then interpreting Mm -hmm. that analysis through their own defined Mm -hmm. criteria. The, 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 but see, for me, the, the big takeaway or the big difference between analysis and evaluation is in that word value. In when we evaluate, we determine which is mm-hmm. better, mm-hmm. which is more plausible, which is uh, more moral or right. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with analysis, it's about seeking to construct some understanding of mm-hmm. what's going on, its causes, its effects, all of those things. But though that's just the information that we use to make our decisions because our decisions are ultimately based on this notion of determining which choice is more valuable, which one is better. So in a situation where you have a, um, you know, a presidential election and the American forced binary, um, then the de- deciding which candidate to vote for is an evaluation, but your evaluation has to be based on the analysis. So mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, in the sort of uh, framework that we like to use around CPET, a, a decision-making framework that we call what, so what, now what, not ours originally, but we love it. Um, the what that is that analysis. Is that, or or the, the what is like the gathering of the information. The so what middle part is the analysis. Yeah. What does it mean? What is this? What, what are the possible implications yeah. of this situation? Yeah. But then the now what, that's the evaluation moment. That's the moment where to say like, now I'm going to take a certain action that is informed by my analysis of the information mm-hmm. I've gathered. Mm-hmm. So it's this rational process um, that is you know, often irrational, mm-hmm. and that's not meant in a pejorative way. It's just to say like emotion matters, faith matters. There are non-rational ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, that evaluation, the reason why it's, sort of, it's, it's higher order on every Bloom's taxonomy or depth of knowledge or whatever you want to call it, is because it ultimately asks people to choose, to mm. decide, mm. and to act. Mm. And that's the hardest thing of all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, as Roberta said, and, and I sort of mentioned as well, that's the sort of thing I think teachers need to model. Yes. Model what analysis looks like. Model right. what evaluation looks like. And I have a, a really practical thought around that. I was listening to both you, Roberta, and then also you, Matt, where you said, like, if Charlottesville happened, you don't have to do it in that moment. I would caution for a long break between you mm-hmm. having that conversation with your kids. I like Roberta's idea of the vulnerability and saying, um, 
you know, I, I don't know what to make of that right now. And then I'm listening to you, Brian, and I'm thinking how great it would be, like, if as a teacher you're feeling vulnerable and and everybody just, like, journals a page on their thoughts, mm-hmm. right? And you tell kids, I really don't know what, what to think about it right now. I don't know how you feel about it. How about we all just write what we feel mm-hmm. right now and then we'll revisit it in two days. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying... So that's a very practical way to be able yeah. to say darn it i i don't know what to make of this you guys um i don't know how you guys think let's all just write down our feelings and our and our gut reactions to all of this right now and you know let's have some more conversations with people that matter to us and you know inform ourselves and then we'll each pull our page back out in two days and then we'll revisit what we what we wrote and then how we feel right now and that way you don't get the situation where kids feel like man my teacher didn't even say anything about yeah, that mm-hmm. or they shot another black kid down my block and nobody said anything as if my life is of no value as if people protesting with torches in the middle of the night doesn't bring back a, a history and a, and a legacy of fear mm-hmm. um, and like and nobody said anything about it right and so like what what is that as i feel like that acknowledgement is really important and then how we deal with it but there are ways in which we um write down what we feel but then delay the analysis of yeah. it a little bit so that everybody has a maybe a clearer or a sharper or a more informed um way of of looking at it when you take it back out and to build on that and double down on the geek factor mm. uh what a wonderful formative assessment Mm. Uh, and rather than assessing necessarily student skills, but like I think there is an assessment of student skills there. But we're also understanding like where are my where are my kids coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, what were they most impacted by? What questions mm-hmm. do they have? Mm-hmm. And that as a teacher gives me a lot of information mm-hmm. about how I can craft this the follow up lesson mm-hmm. um, or the the activity or the experiment mm-hmm. or the discussion mm-hmm. um, or the articles to pull in to look at mm-hmm. um, because it 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 helps us to understand where is it that we are in the landscape Mm. um so i i think we've covered a lot of ground and Mm. been productive but there's so much that we did not cover um are there final thoughts or other provocations that before we close out people would like to put forth i would Um, (laughs) it's a it's a it's a it's a a provocation that um uh i think is um of particular um, importance to teachers which is that um uh, teachers need to examine and be cognizant of um their power Hmm. um their privilege Mm. um, and the power and privilege that is afforded to them by um either uh, uh being born into certain cultures of power yes. or or elect, electing to join or participate in certain cultures of power um, that um, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going back to Paolo Freire here and mm. thinking about um, that first time I read uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed and he starts to describe the oppressor and in my margin mm. I wrote me, question mark, mm-hmm. right? So I think that particularly at this moment in America, um, teachers need to be aware of the, the whether they... they elected to be part of these cultures of power or not they are part of them Mm. and that Mm. matters Mm. and Mm. um, it matters in different ways to different teachers and different students Mm. but if you're not aware of it if you're not thinking about it if you're not examining it i think that's a thing that needs Mm. to happen and Mm. that's a whole longer conversation yeah because power isn't institutionalized right Mm -hmm. and so like what do we align ourselves with wittingly or unwittingly right for me, it's everything that Brian just said. He stole mine. No, <laughs> that was. Uh, 
But I, I heard a quote the other day that said, um, and, and I think we could you could probably say this about any time, but it's most important now. Um, if you wonder what you were what you would have done in in Nazi Germany, it's what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and to think with a long term perspective that every day could go by, and that every day that you sit and think, well, maybe I should, but no, I I, I don't want to. But at the end of the day, we, we are we're going to look back on our lives and sort of be accountable and responsible to ourselves, if not mm-hmm. to our humanity, um, about our actions. And I know I want to hold my head high to say I did everything that I could do to support my students. I did everything I could do to support my colleagues. I did everything I could do to to use that that power and that privilege for the good uh, to for the good of our for the good of our future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree entirely. I the, the quote that comes to mind for me is um, Desmond Tutu's quote that says, "If you have chosen the the path of neutrality, you have chosen the path of the oppressor." And I think for me, as teachers, we cannot we cannot afford to remain neutral. Um, and whether that means doesn't matter what side of the political um, spectrum you're on, it's the matter of your 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 purpose as being a teacher, as creating spaces for the students, for teaching them to think through critically. They may disagree with you, but they have their own opinion. And if you are able to bring all of that space together in your classroom, then you have done well as a teacher. And I think, for me, that's important. I think, as a teacher, we are never neutral, as much as we'd like to think that we are. We don't have that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think... One thing for me is, if you're asking the question, how do I teach in this political climate? I think it's, in addition to what we did at the beginning, trying to define it, looking historically at what have political climates look like, and how have people processed them, and what have been the outcomes, and thinking in like those historical terms, because a lot of this stuff, while there is a new tint to it, is recreation of things that have already existed. Um, there are professors N.D.B. Connolly and Keisha Blaine who actually have a syllabus on public books for understanding Trump historically and breaking into 15 sections um, different aspects of what people have called Trumpism and its historical Mm. antecedents in the U.S. And I think that can be helpful in thinking about, okay, how is this processed in the past and how can this be processed now in an effective way way that allows me to communicate best with students and push them forward. Um, I think that's it. So this topic has not been covered in full, but hopefully there's been some food for thought, and we'll see you guys, or have you guys hear us next week. (laughs) Same time next week. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.